Ah, oh, for Christ's sake, Anakin. Hello and welcome to episode 65 of For Christ's Sake, Anakin. I'm your host, Matthew Nugabauer, coming to you live to air. It's cooler, overcast, suburban Toronto, Ontario, Canada. In case you need to know, it is Thursday, October 29th, 2020. We're getting there, making it through this year. Pandemic is still happening. But the church year goes on too. It is the Thursday after the 21st Sunday after Pentecost, if you are counting. We are just shy of the Feast of All Saints, which is one of my favorites of the year. I'm joined as always by the greatest joy in the galaxy, R2-D2, and my trusty water bottle. And I will take a swig and let R2 say hello. So tonight, uh, it is the Eve of Mando, another occasion in the Star Wars church calendar. It is the Vigil of Mando Season 2, if you will. We are seven and a half hours, I can do math, seven and a half hours away from uh, the first episode of season two dropping on Disney Plus. At least we believe, uh, you know, usually it's 3 a.m. Eastern time on Friday, which is, of course, midnight Pacific is the way Disney Plus has often done it. So we're, we gather that you know, we're seven and a half hours away at the time of recording. And so I thought I'd, I'd go into uh, a question that I, I've stewed on a little bit and has come up. But first, uh, the pull list. I'll get into that briefly. Um, we got House House Atreides, so Dune House Atreides number one, Engine Ward number four, and Bounty Hunters number six. And House Atreides, it, it was it's a comic adaptation of of the novel by Brian, uh, is the the author's son. And I'm sorry, I'm blank. Brian Herbert, Frank Herbert's son. <laughs> Uh, it, it, it's a comic adaptation. I haven't read the, the novel. I have read the Dune novel, but it's meant to be... Uh, so the novel's a prequel. House of Trades is a prequel to Dune. So this comic was likely meant to be a prequel to the film. That is delayed. <laughs> but that's okay. They can still push the comics out. It's, a, it's an interesting... Number one, I got a neat cover that has one of the worms on the main cover. And you open it up and you have the, the normal cover. Uh, it's pretty cool. Check out my Instagram. I'm in UG1138 for, for my, my video of that reveal. Um, the actual comic itself, it seems kind of old school in the way it's using the text boxes to narrate. Um, it's interesting how you employing a visual language. It's going to be very different from the film because it's set on these imperial the imperial capital and on... Uh, forget what the, the planet that the Atreides are, are originally from, a very aquatic planet. Of course, Dune itself is on uh, Arrakis, Dune, which is a desert. It is Tatooine, and uh, the precursor that George Lucas definitely was inspired by. Um, so this comment, yeah, interesting to see how the political machinations of these great houses are set up and how how that works. I'm looking forward to going into a good good first issue there. And in Ward number four, um, continuing a pace. There's more world building in this one. Interestingly, uh, moving out beyond the little village that's centered there, and then the pantheon, the the, the zodiac pantheon that 
is up in the, the heavens wherever they are. Um, there's more world building and exploring other beliefs and it is making me even more curious. Okay, what is the underlying mythical reality of, of this universe that, that George Mann has is starting to create? Um, is it something to do with the Zodiac or is it uh, we've encountered this monotheistic belief and what kind of in-universe questions is he going to explore and out of universe uh, in our real world? Another question, who's actually recounting the story? Uh, the tagline is ancient earth is a myth. And there's this thing about the first children. It, are, are we reading the story of the first children or the first thing? Yeah, I think the first children or it, it just isn't clear. Um, Maybe that's a question that's been intentionally raised also in the narrative. But we'll see. Uh, by Earth and Earth. And who knows? It, it, there's a bit of a Battlestar Galactica vibe there in origins upon origins of, of human life. Um, or descendants upon descendants. Who knows? The, the, grand, the grand cycle that both iterations of Battlestar Galactica set up or, or begun to explore lastly bounty hunters number six going back to the galaxy far far away again i'm still my jury's still out on this series for me just the underworld just purely underworld not entirely my thing it is still seems a little derivative of the mandalorian um but it, we'll see in terms of, of the lone wolf and cub story see where that goes um apparently zuckus is force sensitive well, that's interesting who knew i mean of course i think he was in legends he was and so this is the first real story other than empire strikes back that i've actually started to read involving zuckus so if they go into that a little bit and to what's a force sensitive bounty hunter doing using his gifts to catch bounties when the empire has stamped out all force belief and definitely purge the jedi i i don't know if this run this this the focus of this this story has the kind of depth to go into those questions it hasn't necessarily shown me that yet it may be all, all that right now it may be the one canon marvel story i draw we'll see i'm a completist i might just go for it anyway uh we'll see how this arc turns out but that's a wonderful segue as i take another swig of water and have some r2 help me obi-wan kenobi you're my only hope well that's a good segue be also because this is you know leia appealing to the jedi mando encounter encountering this force sensitive child uh, so the main topic is mando and the force why doesn't he know about the force why doesn't he know about the jedi um, clearly in the, the the fight with the mudhorn he uh he's dumbfounded how is this little child levitating this giant mudhorn thing then later of course he he's 
able to heal Grief Karga in the same way that we see Ray healing the snake. Um, and then, of course, with the armor and, and take, you know, takes the child to the armor in the last episode. And he doesn't know about the Jedi and his mandate. Now going to season two is to help find this sorcerer, this race of enemy sorcerers, whoever that, whatever that conjures up for him. Uh, he's, <laughs> is it the, the, the green species or is it Jedi? Is it some force sensitives? Is it Ahsoka? Is it Luke? He doesn't know because he doesn't know any of these people. <laughs> and so this raises the question of why he doesn't know. Uh, and, and, and I'll go to why in the universe why there is the question. But it's interesting. It came up you know, a few weeks ago, a month ago. It came up maybe three times or so in one week. Um, so my dad, who is not a fan, of, really a fan of Star Wars, he uh, we watched most of season one. We didn't watch the New Republic Prison episode, but, but we watched the rest of them. And uh, so he was he was kind of surprised. And then Alex at Star Wars Explained, he addressed this question in a video, and I'll, I'll go into his answer. And then, um, you know, someone asked on, on a Facebook group uh, the same, that I'm part of, why? Why doesn't Mando know about the Force? Why doesn't he know about the Jedi? Um you know, when, you know, for a thousand generations, the Jedi were the guardians of peace and justice in the galaxy. They were everywhere. Uh, and, that, and that kind of, you know, it's my, my dad's question, because what we see, and I, we, I understand the question, right? From what we see in the films, we follow the Force-sensitive, Force-sensitive, and especially this most highly force sensitive family of uh, the skywalkers uh, and then of course ray who take it or leave it she becomes a skywalker quote unquote so i understand that and from our point of view from our certain point of view the for the force permeates the galaxy you know in the star wars universe um i also you know I also liked Alex's response specifically, but what he raises is, okay, well, uh, he was saved by, you know, Death Watch, and uh, Death Watch had dealings with both Maul and Jedi. If he's being part of Mandalorian lore, Mandalorian culture, why doesn't he know about these this thing that happened, what, 20, 35 years ago, whatever long ago the Clone Wars was, when the Jedi were all over the galaxy. Why doesn't he know about it? Why, why is this this strange, bizarre thing? Why is it kind of bizarre even to grief, Karga? Um, you know, Cara Dune should know, right? I mean, she's probably been in some proximity to Luke Skywalker during the rebellion a little bit um but she doesn't say anything and then quill has only heard stories right so the standard line about this question is uh, yeah 
the Empire wiped them out. And I've gone into this a little bit in previous episodes, but which is why I'm bringing it back now. You know, so the Empire, you know, well, the Sith, Darth Sidious, he wants the focus to be on him. He wants to be the one in charge of the Force. He doesn't. He doesn't just want to control people. He wants to control the meaning of the universe. That's the Sith goal. Is is to have dominance over. It's not to submit to the will of the Force. It's to wrestle the Force to his will. It's it's a very Nietzschean idea of, and at least the the, the dark side of Nietzschean idea. Right? It's not. That's what Nietzsche himself intended. But the dark side of a Nietzschean ideal of the Ubermensch transcending societal notions of good and evil and saying, you know, I get to decide by my will. So what does Darth Sidious do? says, I can have the force and no one else can. In fact, I'm going to replace faith in the force with faith in my empire. And that I do see as the origin of the incredibly technocratic and militaristic and mechanical ordered way of, well, way of building buildings and, and spaceships and organizing and uh, the, the way organizing society and organizing the military, the way that the military can't have any kind of personal life really there's the pressure to constantly reduce their characters themselves to machines right reduce their lives to mechanical lifeless cogs and we see that with the people with the cybernetic enhancements um, and so you know, what that does then is say yeah well sorry i should say it, it contrasts then with what the force does here is how the force works right the force is always working towards the dignity and sustainability of life right of the unity and interconnectedness of all things but how that unity and interconnectedness requires the partic a particular each particular person living their particular life and seeking to be their best selves right it's it's why what we see with qui-gon you know he um, you know, still on the qui-gon kick of course right even in an episode one i recently watched how surprised at how forward and confident he is because we think someone who is serene and uh submitting and submissive to the will of the force he uh, he's going to be quieter and calmer and he is in, the, in moments especially the moments before his death where he's kneeling in front of the the laser laser wall there but you know, qui-gon is very clear in his mission and he's committed to that and especially he's committed to the possibility that he might achieve peace um, might might support the well-being of the Naboo people and the Gungans. And so he, he's able to step forward confidently as a Jedi Master and committed to his mission. 
And he has to ignite his lightsaber. He has to ignite the green. Even though I'm sure he's very reluctant to. He only does, well he does with the Trade Federation and then with on these robots. There's another metaphor there, right? Uh, of how the Trade Federation is more mechanistic. Um, but then of course with Darth Maul, he has to, has to duel him. So fast forward then, again, to, to the Empire, um, and of course the Sith wanting to wipe out the Jedi. And the Jedi at their, at their best pursuing life and its dignity, but that's the thing is they had already fallen to the dark side. That's what the whole Grey Jedi thing doesn't make sense is to say that the Jedi... You know, if, if you claim that the Jedi at the end of the Republic represent the dogma of the light, well, light doesn't fit into a dogma. Light can illuminate truth, but it also illuminates practices of dogmatism. <laughs> right? um, so in a way, they had already succumbed to faith in the Republic. Even Obi-Wan's claim, my allegiance is to the Republic, to democracy. That's already tinged, right? That's already that's already a question of why isn't your allegiance to the Force? Right? On the one hand, yes, it, it's, you know, I can say, you know, I'm, me here, I'm Canadian. My allegiance is to at least the well-being of Canadian democracy. I want it to succeed. I like Canada. <laughs> um, but it's already even concerning that someone who I respect deeply, like Obi-Wan, has already said my allegiance to the Republican democracy and not the will of the force. I guess he's also trying to appeal to Anakin one last ditched attempt of saying You're, this is what the dark side leads to is oppression and uh, violence, whereas the light side, again, going back to this point of the personalist angle here, uh, the dignity and the expression and therefore the choice and, and electoral democracies in, in a way foster the unity and diversity that the light side of the force can bring. So, <laughs> back to Mando, that was a bit of a, excursus but so the empire you know they they wanted to wipe all that out they had none of it they worked very hard again to replace faith in the force with faith in the jedi or, or with faith in their empire and the solutions the security the stability the order all that language we know what that really ended up being but the reason i like that answer real world reason is what I was getting at just now in, in terms of ultimate allegiance. Right? I like how it explores the way, and this is, this is getting complicated, I'm editing myself here. But here's a good one. You know, the 20th century, we've had, we had a lot of technical solutions. And there were responses to the fact that Christendom was coming to an end. 
the rise of liberal democracy in the West owes itself to the fact that divided Christians couldn't agree. And so, and this is this is a thesis by my prof, Ephraim Radner. The book, Brutal Unity, great book, check it out. So, the divided church couldn't agree, the divided Christians couldn't agree, so let's have a parliament to decide, and the crown will give a sense to uh, the crown in, in its duty to uphold a Christian nation will give a sense to whatever this parliament decides for the good uh, of society. And gradually, though, we can see that as the good. Gradually and gradually, claims of religious belief become reduced to, oh, it's just sectarian. It doesn't actually support the common good. And I might sound like a conservative here. I, I'm not. I, I care about tradition. And, of course, I'm here. If you're here, I'm a person of faith. So I take faith seriously. Um, and I get concerned when uh, questions of faith are reduced to being divisive. Now, again, to be fair, the most visible actors and visible proponents of, of the Christian faith in the West right now are pretty darn divisive, are pro guilty of, you know, election fraud and uh, tax fraud and <laughs> all the countless scandals that have, have come about. But I, I like the, the um, I like this original answer of why the empire you know, has wiped out faith in the force because especially the way capitalism and urban individualism have have really caused a lot of isolation, a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of loss of meaning. If all that matters is if I go out and can buy the next thing, you know, I say this as someone surrounded by Star Wars toys, and I got to be careful, and I got to consider what you know, you know, am I spending for the good or for ill? Even as a good social democrat who does believe that the state can uh, can regulate and can administer programs and meet the needs of people because churches just can't anymore in part, but also because we need to coordinate in a pluralist society and to be careful not to give too much stock into, or, or not to give it too much stock, but not to see that as the be all and end all either. I call myself a bad social democrat because I don't think government programs can save us. I think they can have a part. Um, the empire is this great warning of what happens. Yes, you know, the end of Revenge of the Sith, late Republic. It's a great warning of what happens when religious institutions become more concerned about preserving their own welfare than meeting the needs of others. And I've addressed that. Um, but being more concerned about meeting the needs of, of their own welfare is not submitting to the will of God or the will of the force, right? Necessarily. <laughs> right? There is a need to be responsible with our finances and our budgets. And 
all that, but um, the great example of the sex abuse scandal and how all the cover-ups. Clearly, right, that, that's a problem. But at the same time, is our response then going to be, as a society, are we going to continue to push religious convictions and faith convictions into this little box? Or are we actually going to learn how to listen to what they might have to say? What there might be wisdom there. I, I have verged on traditionalism <laughs> a little too much sometimes. But again, the, so the empire is a warning. And so the, it's the rebellion that is able to say, then say, may the force be with you. And Luke Skywalker is around and uh, doing his thing. But the New Republic... You know, doesn't have, I mean, they don't have thousands of Jedi walking around, right? Flying around. So that, I mean, that's why, I, so that's, that's why I like the answer of why the force and knowledge of the Jedi doesn't have that widespread reach. I'll get, have some water, and then I'll get to uh, Alex Damon's own specific response to Mando in a minute. So, the specific question, why doesn't Mando know? And, and so, Alex's answer is, specifically when it comes to Din Djarin, uh, a few things. First of all, this group of Mandalorians is in hiding. They've been probably cut off from Death Watch. They um, need to kind of restrict knowledge of the past going forward. Din possibly doesn't know because no one, I mean, the simple answer is because maybe no one's told him, right? There are so, the, this very shrinking small group, sorry, small group of Mandalorians is probably very focused on preserving, in, in a necessary way, preserving their own survival. Because they're going to go extinct. <laughs> they're literally underground. And so. I'm just trying to think. You know why. Knowledge of the force. Knowledge of the Jedi. Maybe it's something for him. To come into. They'll tell him. A lot of communities do this. He just hasn't been initiated. Into it yet. That's possible. What's interesting to me then. And I can see that, but what's interesting is why, you know, the armor goes from, I mean, we presume as part of Death Watch, the armor goes from uh, maybe being part of Death Watch and being part of Maul's group, saying, again, working against the Jedi, working against the Republic during the Siege of Mandalore. And, um, and everything you can see in Clone Wars Season 7. To here with, uh, you know, at the end of, of Mandalorian Season 1, saying, oh, and now you must take him, and you must take the child and, and raise him and uh, 
you know, you're going to teach him. He's going to teach you. You must bring him into your life. And this ancient tribe of enemy sorcerers. And that, that probably in part has to do with... That probably in part has to do with Death Watch. Sorry. It also possibly has to do with the ancient Mandalore Jedi Wars, which well, we're pretty, pretty sure. And then the Darksaber might come into that. The question for me is what has changed? What has changed for the armor? What has changed for Mandalorians generally? And we can track that change a little bit. And we can see it at least, right? We can see it in the character of Bo-Katan, for example, who is also part of Death Watch. And then she sees, oh, Maul has actually taken over. And so... Uh, taken over and, and usurped maybe Death Watch's sense of traditional, here's another use of the word traditionalism, their traditional Mandalorian warlike heritage that Bo-Katan's sister has just jettisoned for, I think, for better, but she might think for worse. Anyway, Maul has hijacked Death Watch's protest to his own ends. Maybe the Jedi, if we understand them as a race of warriors and not just as the guardians of peace and justice in this galactic republic over there, maybe there's room to ally with them. And Bo-Katan ends up, does end up doing that. And, and we see her decades later uh, having some support from the rebellion. It's interesting the Empire treats Mandalorians very similar to the way they treated the Jedi. They have the same word, the purge. Right? Order 66 with the Jedi. The purge for the Mandalorians. And yes, they have the super commandos and usurping those traditions. But we see with Bo-Katan, again, having none of it. The Mandalorians, the, the, the super commandos, super commandos, that's right. All the white uniforms, even their Beskar, is just white imperial uniformity when taking your Beskar and painting it and molding it to your liking. As we see with the armor, is a great sacred tradition to the Mandalorian people. You see, in times of crisis, we throw all our cards up in the air and we actually see what sticks we we can throw it's an opportunity to throw our old allegiances and belief systems and assumptions and really see okay what really matters you know, we've seen that with the pandemic we've seen that with the way that's questioned our, uh, our responses to pre-existing conditions, at least in the U.S. I think, I hope, in my prayers, that's going to actually open up this conversation to say, um, oh, you can, you know, we can use pre-existing conditions as an excuse on an part of insurance companies and my healthcare. Why do insurance companies have that power in the first place? Right? That kind of thing. We've seen that with, the fall of Christendom, right? Does our institutional relevance in the world matter? 
does the fact that people that nobody knows the Bible very well or goes to church or has faith does that matter and the funny thing is the answer that I've gone on the last half hour about is well the question is why does might that matter right why might at least those of us who have faith why might that be of benefit to society what's interesting again just as a bit of a side point that's what I hope the higher public explores <laughs> in depth so we're getting uh, we're getting in Mandalorian a story of rediscovery of faith in higher public we're getting story of faith just being there um, it's we know it is the decline we know it's the start of the decline but there is a crisis that is going to actually uh, press why things matter and what matters and what doesn't so maybe i've come around to saying why doesn't din know about the jedi or the force you know maybe maybe what i've used this to, as a springboard of saying well what really matters is what's the effect of him recovering this understanding and recovering this vision through this child what's the importance of that is it going to help him rediscover the richness of mandalorian heritage he already is it's interesting he, he's in a way a fundamentalist <laughs> Right. He's very strict with uh, not taking off his mask. Is that really a Mandalorian rule? We clearly, clearly it isn't. But in this context for this group, kind of is. Uh, for the sake of self-preservation, right? That That's what we think. That's what I think is the only reason they have them, the mask rule is because they're a covert and trying to survive. Well, actually, you know, come to think of it, here's the thing. What if he discovers he doesn't really need to, that doesn't need to be absolute anymore? What if he doesn't need to hide his natural identity of his physical appearance? Sorry. What if he doesn't need to hide his natural identity of his physical appearance so much because now his ally is the Force? And a powerful ally it is, right? His ally is this this child that he's taken into this clan of two, the Mudhorn clan. Right? The clan named after the moment where he received this awakening of the Force. And then how is that going to connect him to the wider galaxy, the wider Mandalorian story? The wider Jedi story. Right? We know the Dark Saber is there. That's connected in. If the rumors are to believe, be believed, Kitty Sackoff coming to be Bo Katan again in person, live action. Is he going to use the Force as, as his ally? Not that he's Force sensitive, but as inspiration the way Bo-Katan did 
use the Force as inspiration to resist Moff Gideon's attempt on the part of the Empire to use that most sacred Mandalorian symbol as a way of flattening and subjugating the Mandalorian people once and for all. Is, is Din going to use that resource to resist? The way Bo-Katan, as for the last we saw, we know it didn't turn out that way because Moff Gideon has the Darksaber now. But Bo-Katan saw the rebellion allied with the Jedi. Of course, Ezra is right there. <laughs> um, using it to resist the Empire's flattening and oppression of, of her people. And then, of course, uh, you know, again, if, if the rumors are to be believed, are we going to encounter Ahsoka? Is she part of this race of enemy sorcerers? We know she's not formally part of any kind of Jedi allegiance, but nobody is because the Empire wiped them out. We can start clean. Clearly, she doesn't uh, care about the Jedi label. She hasn't since her sham trial, revealing that the Jedi have fallen to the dark side just uh, near the end of the Clone Wars. But she continues to be a servant of the light, a servant of the Force. So again, the interesting question for me is not so much why does did not believe in the Force, but what story is John Favreau and Dave Filoni telling, or are they telling about this recovery of the Force? A story that J.J. Abrams tried to tell, I think, that uh, that Ryan Johnson really dug into what does and doesn't matter and what does and doesn't mean. Um, with Ray, right? Ray's recovery, Ray's enlightenment, if you will, the voice that's already been there, but now she learns to listen to it. So that is getting me amped up, even for Mandalorian. I shouldn't say even, but you know, I'm definitely more excited for season two than season one. I was excited for season one, but. Even just recording this now, you know, I can't wait. It's uh, now seven hours <laughs> away from it dropping. I'm not going to be staying up. I should mention this. I will not be staying up till 3 a.m. to watch it. I'll watch it with my breakfast tomorrow. And hopefully it'll give me, give me fodder to talk about right here on this podcast. Um, I won't be doing any kind of in-depth episode-by-episode analysis, but again, yeah. As things come up, I will hopefully have things to talk about. So for now, uh, get a good night's sleep. Get ready to watch some Mandalorian Season 2. Celebrate the vigil, <laughs> if you will. This has been Episode 65 of For Christ's Sake, Anakin. Thanks for listening. May the Force be with you always. <laughs>